Welcome to the New Books Network. Studying the New Testament through inscriptions is an intuitive introduction to inscriptions from the Greco-Roman world. Inscriptions can help contextualize certain events associated with the New Testament in a way that many widely circulated literary texts do not. This book both introduces inscriptions and demonstrates sound methodological use of them in the study of the New Testament. Through five case studies, it highlights the largely unrecognized ability of inscriptions to shed light on early Christian history, practice, and the leadership structure of the early Christian churches, as well as to solve certain New Testament exegetical impasses. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Clint Burnett about his new book, Studying the New Testament Through Inscriptions. Dr. Burnett earned his PhD at Boston College, is an adjunct professor of New Testament at Johnson University in Knoxville, Tennessee. His research focuses on interpreting early Christianity in light of the material culture of the cities in which it was established. Dr. Burnett, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and I I wonder if we could just begin this interview maybe by you sharing a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in biblical studies. Well, how I became interested in biblical studies, first and foremost, is that I became a Christian at the age of 19 and was introduced to this weird book that is the Bible and wanted to know more about the Bible. And so I went to college to uh, earn a a bachelor's of arts in, in Bible and also to be a minister. And when I got to college, uh, I realized that you could do this professionally, that you could uh, teach the Bible uh, in a college setting and you could delve into it and you could learn more about it. And so then I said, that's what I want to do. So I then figured out the path I needed to go on to get there. And part of that path included a master of divinity. And while in my master of divinity, I was introduced to inscriptions by a professor who had um, done a postdoc at the University of Bonn in Germany. His name is Richard Oster, and he is a mentor and a friend. And he just introduced me to inscriptions in a class that was called New Testament World. And I got to see what inscriptions were and how they could shed light on the New Testament and help us better understand earliest Christianity. And so I immediately fell in love with them. And then I just began to read everything that I could about inscriptions, to read as many inscriptions as I could. And uh, I continue to do so today. Yeah, well, you've definitely put so much time into thinking through this issue. So to begin, why don't we just start with, with asking the question, like, what is an inscription? An inscription is basically a message that can be written or scratched on any durable material. Um, And it also includes graffiti, which sort of, that's the one caveat to the definition of a message written on durable material because graffiti was not made to last, but graffiti is included in there. So most often people think of inscriptions, they'll think of something engraved on marble or limestone and it's just a message there that is meant to last right so between those two things then like how would you then say why inscriptions are used like why were ancient cultures known for for making inscriptions so the cool thing about the study of earliest christianity is the roman empire is sort of the apogee 
of the use of inscriptions in antiquity. They were used um, for hundreds, if not a thousand years. We have inscriptions from the ancient Near East. But when you reach the Roman Empire, and specifically when you reach the last part of the first century BCE into the first century CE, the use of inscriptions just skyrockets. And so scholars have looked at this and asked questions about it. There's not a lot of agreement about it other than in the Roman Empire, uh, the stability that was there, that the Romans provided, that people knew that their empire would last to some extent. And so they created inscriptions for future generations to read. Gotcha. Would you say the same thing about graffiti? Like, I know this is a little off the cuff question, but would would graffiti fit into that category as well? So graffiti is your one outlier when it comes to inscriptions. Epigraphers, the people who study inscriptions, others, a synonym for inscription would be an epigraph, which is from the Latin word, I mean, excuse me, the Greek word that means on and writing. Um, and so graffiti is your one outlier uh, because graffiti was not made to last Graffiti was, were written on walls in antiquity, inside homes, outside houses. There's a great graffito from Pompeii where someone says, oh, wall, how are you still standing because you have so much graffiti on you? People knew in antiquity that the messages that they scratched or wrote on a wall like that would be covered up because they would be replastered. Gotcha. Oh, that's helpful. So then as we approach New Testament studies and biblical studies in general, why are inscriptions important, especially for the early Christian movement and studying what happened during that time? Inscriptions are important for several reasons. The first reason is their ubiquity. They are everywhere. Uh, they were not just confined to elite people. Uh, they were not just erected uh, by Kings, uh, they were everywhere in ancient cities and outside ancient cities leading up to them. All of our grave inscriptions were usually outside the cities because unless you were really important, you weren't buried inside the city. And so they're literally everywhere cluttering up everything. Um, what we have is just a fraction of what uh, sort of what was once erected in antiquity. Right now, according to epigraphers, there's almost a half a million surviving Greek and Latin and Semitic inscriptions that date to the Roman Empire and thereabouts. And so that's just a fraction of what we had. So they're everywhere. Uh, they're not confined to the elite. So we have slaves who will erect inscriptions. Uh, there are erect inscriptions erected on behalf of children. Uh, craftsmen will erect inscriptions. Um Women will erect inscriptions, and so they give us windows into the lives of those who are not sort of the 1% of antiquity, which makes them very important. And the third reason why they're really important, and the reason that I really appreciate them, is their contextual documents, meaning they allow us to provide what we call a social history of a particular city in antiquity. Um, most people just lump the Roman world into the pagan world and think of it as, as a monolith, but it was very diverse. Each city had its own unique little subculture where there was its own unique pantheon in the sense of each city had its own patron deity, its own particular customs, its own particular traditions. And we can recover those with inscriptions. 
These traditions and cults and customs, they aren't talked about in our surviving Greco-Roman literature, which makes inscriptions so important. And so as I'm trying in my own work to contextualize the cities associated with Paul, as opposed to guessing or relying on just broad generalizations about the Roman Empire, I can actually go to the sources that people who live during Paul's time in those cities and I can see the evidence that and the inscriptions and archaeological evidence and coins and those types of things that they erected and be able to uh, reconstruct uh, Paul's epistles and the background for those epistles and difficulties and those types of things from that material. Yeah, right. And so it's really bringing that world um, back into like full HD color. And um, yeah, it's so interesting. So let's get into the content of the book then. You really, I mean, to answer that question of why inscriptions are important to New Testament studies, you then offer five case studies on the importance of inscriptions. So you begin with the title Curios and how it's applied to Jesus. So maybe, um, yeah, could you just maybe summarize how, that chapter shows um, how inscriptions are important for understanding that particular title? Mm-hmm. So for much of the history of the 20th century and New Testament scholarship, people have argued over where Jesus was first called Lord. And in the early part of the 20th century, there was a group of German scholars and then other scholars who followed them uh, that were part of what was known as the history of religion school. And they looked at things that I look at and examine in my own work. They looked at uh, inscriptions and other things like that to determine, uh, to try to place uh, the development of earliest Christianity and specifically uh, that Jesus as kurios, so the divinity of Jesus, uh, to place that in light of other religious movements of the time. And so it was uh, amongst those scholars, the consensus was that Jesus's what I call kurioship or lordship could not have developed on Palestinian soil because of the oneness of God uh, and the monotheism of those of the Jews who lived in that time period, specifically in Palestine. And so they argued that Jesus's lordship was derived uh, and occurred on what they called pagan soil. Once early Christians began to migrate outside of uh, ancient Palestine and into Greco-Roman cities, and they became influenced by uh, hero cults and other cults. And they began to call Jesus Lord because those cults were popular. Um, there's been a lot of reaction to that. And now the consensus is the opposite, that Jesus was called Lord um, by the first Christians uh, who lived in Palestine. And, and what I do in this chapter is just to show that there's one interesting aspect that both groups of scholars have overlooked, and that is inscriptions. And inscriptions actually help the case of the second group of scholars, because they actually show that Lord is a uh, is used in inscriptions in and around ancient Palestine uh, during the formation of earliest Christianity. And the title Lord is not necessarily a divine title. It's usually most often a royal title. And so I was able to gather inscriptions, including some of the Herods that are mentioned in the New Testament. They're all called lords because that's what people called kings in that particular place and time. And so I was able to, in the chapter, uh, go through those inscriptions and show how all of this supports that Jesus' curiosity developed in ancient Palestine and 
but it also sheds light on what the early Christians meant when they called Jesus kurios. They weren't necessarily saying Jesus is divine, although they did think he was divine. But what they meant is that he is the royal messianic king. Right. So would you be okay with using the term subversive? Do you think that's what was being done with the term kurios? I don't, I'm not comfortable with saying that it was subversive. Um, I think that it would say that Jesus is the royal Messiah who has sway over all the earth, which includes the Roman emperor, but also includes um, the kings of any of the client kingdoms. So I don't think it's just directed at Rome. I think it's directed at the larger establishment. Um, and I think for the first Christians, uh, their view is, uh, I, their view is more cosmic than just, especially with, with Jesus being Lord of the cosmos. And you get that great passage in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, where Jesus receives the curious title and everything in heaven, earth, and below the earth acknowledges his lordship. I think for them that it's much bigger than just the Roman Empire and the client kingdoms that are associated with it. So in a way, I would say that it, it's not subversive, but it neutralizes and says that you know, Jesus is the one in charge. He is God's Lord or kurios. That's good. Thank you. Yeah, that, that's helpful. So then you turn to Paul, and in particular, um, what Paul wrote in a letter to the church at Corinth on uh, the Lord's Supper and how that was being practiced. How, in your words, do inscriptions help us understand what Paul was referencing in, I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Yes. So the debate about 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and the Lord's banquet there revolves around the translation of one verb, and that's prolambano, which occurs in 1 Corinthians 11.21, and whether or not it means to go ahead with or to eat. So if you translate it as go ahead with, then the problem that you're reconstructing is that you have a certain set of the Corinthian church, particularly those who are more fluent, uh, they get to the Lord's banquet first and they go ahead with their meal. If you go the other way and say that prolambano means to eat or devour, in this case, as some scholars choose to translate, you're saying that they get there and everybody shows up on time, but the rich just eat all the food and gobble it up in front of the poor Christians. Uh, in order to argue that prolambano means to eat, scholars have appealed to inscriptions. And so what I did is I went back and re-looked at the argument and specifically the inscriptions that they use. And I was able to show that in the inscription to which they point, there are three uses of prolambano and not everyone is used the same. One uh, will be to eat, but one also means to go ahead with. And so the, the argument is that prolambano with food as an object always means to eat. Well, the inscription itself overturns that, the one on which scholars rely to make that argument. And I was able to show there are also other inscriptions closer because this inscription dates to the second century CE. I'm able to show there are inscriptions that are much closer to the time that Paul composed 1 Corinthians in the mid-50s. 
and that those show that prolongano has a temporal meaning. And so there's no reason not to translate it as to go ahead with and argue that it makes the most sense in its context because of the Roman culture and character of Corinth, not the Greek culture, and how people uh, went to banquets in a Roman culture uh, that uh, prolombano means most likely or probably uh, to go ahead in this case. Thank you so much. Yeah. And then you turn in chapter four um, to imperial loyalty oaths and you, you go right to Acts chapter 17 um, where Luke writes, uh, he uses a phrase, Caesar's decrees, um, which as you state commonly refers to a group of inscriptions that contain oaths of loyalty. So how do inscriptions help us understand this phrase and, and what did you argue in that chapter? So the, there was an article that was published several years ago by E.A. Judge where he's trying to define what Caesar's decrees might be. And he pointed out that there are inscriptions that have been discovered. At that point, I think there were two um, that talk about that are imperial imperial loyalty oaths. And these would be ones that provincials, people who live within the Roman Empire, took um, it's a fealty oath, basically, where they swore loyalty to the Roman emperor who was on the throne at that point in time. And several scholars have picked this up, and they see this as the background. These would be, they identify those as Caesar's decrees. And so that essentially what is going on, they, they argue, is that the first Christians in Thessalonica were disregarding uh Caesar's decrees, they were questioning and causing people not to be loyal to Caesar, but to uh, be loyal to Jesus, who is king. So I, part of what I did is I tested that hypothesis, and I looked in, at all of these inscriptions in depth, and I was able to show that the problem with that proposal is that they aren't Caesar's decrees, that there's no case where a loyalty oath, a fealty oath to a Roman emperor, uh, are issued from the imperial power. They're all local decrees that local Greek and Latin communities took. I think there's only six of them, and that I was able to show that they're that they're all very different. That they're not all the same. Some include the worship of the emperor; others don't. That the language of the inscriptions, uh, the Latin ones particularly, are very individualistic. And individualistic in the sense of uh, they use first-person singular verbs, I, and first-person pronouns, me, while the Greek uh, imperial loyalty oaths use uh, the first-person plural, we, and other first-person plural pronouns. And so they aren't Caesar's decrees, and some of them are associated with the worship of the emperor, some of them aren't. And I was also able to, to show from them that they happen for a reason. There's a particular context for them. And they they don't just occur randomly. People in that city don't just wake up one day and say, you know, I think we need to swear allegiance to the Roman emperor. Usually there's a context for it. Most often that context would be a new emperor ascending to the throne. So I was able to go through those. But I didn't want to just tear down and not build up. And so what I did is then I went back and re-looked at Acts chapter 17 and said, what might how might inscriptions help us to interpret Caesar's decrees? And the conclusion to which I came 
is that Caesar's decrees aren't imperial loyalty oaths. What they are are uh, letters from Caesar. This would be first from Augustus and then from subsequent emperors, uh, affirming and reaffirming Thessalonica's free status in the empire, which was a very coveted title and status in the Roman Empire, and Thessalonica had it. And so what's really going on, I argue, in Acts chapter 17, is that Christians are, uh, what the charge against Christians is, is that they are overturning, that they're overturning Caesar's decrees in that there are um, threatening uh, our safety, our autonomy, our free status in the Roman Empire because it was a status that emperors gave and emperors took away. And I show in the chapter there are indications, there are times when it was taken away and usually it was taken away for acts that are seen as not loyal to the emperor. So in the end, I argue that the Caesar decree, Caesar's decrees are best interpreted as letters written from the emperor to Thessalonica acknowledging the city's free status. Yes, that, that's so fascinating. That really, to me, is a, a great example of how inscriptions can help us <laughs> interpret the text so well. Yeah. So then you go in chapter five. Um, you, you stated earlier that one of the great things about inscriptions is that they span um, social economic statuses. And, and you show in this chapter how the non-elite, uh, especially in the Roman world, were um, were treated. And so, yeah, why don't you help us understand how inscriptions kind of shed more cultural light on the non-elite in that time? Well, one of the ways, the important ways that inscriptions shed light is that inscriptions are not the product of elite males. Um, their inscriptions are the product of slaves and women and sometimes even children. And so if you look at what um, excuse me, what our uh, surviving Greco-Roman literature says about women, it's all from an androcentric perspective. And so what inscriptions are able to do is to sort of show that women were much more active in the world than our uh, literary sources tell us that uh, they were active in all areas of society. The only things they weren't doing, they couldn't be politicians and they couldn't be soldiers and generals, but they were wielding influence and uh, they were actually, in this particular chapter, they were leaders of local cults. And so one of the things that I do in this particular chapter is I look at uh, how inscriptions may help us to think about the leadership of the Philippian church and whether or not the two ladies who are mentioned in Philippians chapter 4 in verses 2 and 3, Euodia and Syntyche, whether or not they had some sort of leadership role in the church. Uh, the reason that's important is Paul doesn't make a habit of calling out um, women in his letters and telling them to get along. He doesn't make a habit of calling out people a lot to tell them to get along, but he does in this particular case. And so there must be a reason why he singles out Euodia and Syntyche. And so basically what I do is I'll look and see, is it possible that Euodia and Syntyche are some of those deacons and overseers mentioned in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2, the people to whom Paul actually wrote. So I was able to go through um, all of the inscriptions that have to do with women being active in cults in Philippi. 
Uh, this is not every single inscription, unfortunately, because there are some inscriptions that are yet to be published. But my sources tell me it's going to be a while before those are published. And so I went ahead and did my chapter. Um, and so what I, I was able to show in the chapter is that women were active uh, they in Philippi. They were patronesses. Um, and they were even leaders in local cults, exercising leadership uh, over men. So there's a great inscription that is a list of people who were involved in this one particular cult. And the one of the, the cultic official is a woman and everybody else who's involved in the cult are men. And so she's obviously exercising some sort of authority over them. And so I argue in that chapter that then there's no reason for us to conclude that Yodi and Syntyche aren't exercising similar authority in the Philippian church, that they were probably deacons, because we know that Phoebe, in Romans chapter 16, was a deacon. We hear of deaconesses in a famous letter that in the early second century that um, Pliny, uh, the younger, who was the governor of a province uh, known as Bithynia, uh, exchanged with the Roman emperor Trajan, talks about him torturing two deaconesses. Um, and so we have um, historical attestation that in the in earliest Christianity, women were deacons. We have attestation in Paul's uh, epistles. And so it's possible, I'm not able to come to a definitive conclusion, but it's possible that they're also overseers. And it's not clear from the letter to the Philippians that the office of deacon and overseer, that there's a hierarchical difference between them. Um, and so we're not really sure because there's not a lot that's talked about as far as offices go in the New Testament. So that's how inscriptions help us to better see the more involvement that uh, Christian women had in early Christian churches. Yes. Yeah. I love how how this research can really just make the ancient world come alive and, mm -hmm. and allows us to time travel in that way. So then you end your last case study with um, a really fascinating study of name calculation and then how it applies to how we understand Revelation 13, 18. So, yeah, I'd love it if you could maybe just define what name calculation is and then, yeah, what you had to say about Revelation 13. So name calculation is hard for us to grasp, but Greeks didn't have a number system. And so they use their letters of their alphabet functioned as numbers. So it was old hat, second nature. It was this in their world that when they saw a word, they could calculate its number. So if you look at any inscription, for example, the way they tell a date is with letters. So name calculation uh, is associated with the idea that if you use letters as numbers and vice versa, then every single word, every single sentence, every single paragraph, I mean, really every single book has a numerical value. Take a long time to calculate the numerical value of a book, but it has one nonetheless. So there was a practice in the first century CE, uh, really getting ramped up in the first century CE, and it continues on throughout antiquity, of calculating people's names with numbers. And so this happens in Revelation 13, 18. The number of the beast is 666 in the best manuscripts. Could be 616, but most scholars agree it's 666. And so 
for years, scholars have looked to the same one or two in uh, graffiti from Pompeii that talk about, I love the girl whose number is 545. Well, I was able to go back and to do some hard work and roll up my sleeves. And I was able to find that there are more than 20 other inscriptions, most of which are graffiti, that have name calculation in them. What is awesome is that some of these, particularly those that have been found in the last 20 years, that we know the archaeological context for them. And so I really dug in deep there. And I was able to show that regardless of where people were in the ancient Mediterranean world, in the Roman Empire, that everyone knew what name calculation was. That uh, I have some name calculations that are from Italy, some are from Asia Minor, some are from Greece, but they all follow a similar pattern. And so this is a pan-Mediterranean phenomenon. And I was able to show specifically from the graffiti with name calculations whose context we know that these occurred in settings, particularly where people knew whose name was being calculated and they knew. Um, so it was, it was a, a, a game of, of insiders. So it was a game that insiders played that people would provide you with enough um, context to be able to figure it out. For example, there is, one inscription from a dining room in a an Ephesian house. It's a beautiful home. It's one of the terrace houses. If you've ever been to the city of Ephesus and seen those houses, they are some of the most elite dwellings in the city. So there's a great inscription where someone says, um, I love the girl whose number is 1241. And I've forgotten the exact number, so don't hold me to that. If you're if you are Gorgas solve this name calculation. And then we can see a second hand in the graffito comes in and says, and her lover's number is you know, 850. And so this is uh, a practice geared towards insiders who have enough information to be able to get it. And so then I looked at how John the prophet uses name calculation in the book of Revelation and noticed things like some of the clearest times in which he uh, refers to the Roman Empire are in association with this name calculation. And the clearest times that he talks about the worship of the Roman emperor as or like a god are associated in the same context as this name calculation in Revelation 13. And so I'm able to argue in the chapter that John gives his audience everything he needs to know. And what is more, he seems to follow this larger pan-Mediterranean practice and uh, is very similar in his approach to providing the name of the beast. And so it would have been something that his audience would have understood, would have grasped, but had enough context to understand that it was probably Nero. Wow, yeah. That's awesome. I love that chapter. I think it's so cool and interesting. Um, and yeah, these are just great five case studies showing the importance of inscriptions for how we understand the New Testament. So I just encourage our listeners to go and pick up a copy of this book. You will really enjoy it. Um, and Dr. Burnett, I just I love your conviction that you state um, at the end saying that Everyone who wants to study the Bible should aspire to be as well informed as possible about the New Testament. And 
yeah, that is, that is just such a great sentiment. And I'm um, just really thankful that we've gotten to have this conversation today. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Yeah. So until next time, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And until our next edition, take up and read.